Hello again, everyone, and welcome to another edition of the Hokies Press Pass Podcast. Alongside Andy Bitter, the Virginia Tech football beat writer for the Roanoke Times, this is Aaron McFarling, sports columnist for the Roanoke Times. We are back from South Beach. Got a little sunburn, got a little sun, uh, had some fun on the beach, and then watched Virginia Tech lose 28-10 to in what was a pretty stunning result for both of us. Uh, you had them winning by, what, eight points, something like that? I think it was, yeah, eight. I said 27-19. And I had something in the neighborhood of 16 points. You were really wrong. Yeah. That was really embarrassing. I did not expect Virginia Tech to be that poor offensively. I think that was where, you know, because I, you know, as I wrote going into that game, I think they've been holding some stuff back, and I think they've got a little something for this uh, this Miami defense uh, that had been very good statistically all year, but they just didn't. I mean, Tech didn't have, uh, I mean, they, they had turnover woes, which never helps. Uh, that's something they've been able to avoid, but they just they couldn't run the ball very effectively. They couldn't get separation on the receivers. Let's take each one of those piece by piece. Let's start with running the ball. I mean, if you look at the statistics, Miami was something in the 80s uh, nationally against the run. They hadn't stopped it, like, all that well this year. And Virginia Tech came out running the ball. Uh, I think, you know, 10 of their first 12 plays were runs. Couldn't couldn't get much. Yeah, uh, that didn't surprise me necessarily. Uh, Virginia Tech had played Boston College and North Carolina earlier in the season. Those are two teams that statistically had been the worst ones in the conference at stopping the run, and Virginia Tech could not run the ball against either of those teams with any kind of authority. I think they uh, it was like 2.3 yards a carry against Boston College, like 3.9 against North Carolina, which got obscured by the fact that they scored 59 points in that game. So everybody thought it was such a great offensive performance. It wasn't really that good. Uh, so this didn't necessarily surprise me that they couldn't run the ball very well. I didn't think they were going to go up 200 yards or something like that against Miami. But uh, it was sort of those critical failures in key spots where, uh, you know, they have the fourth down play and, they're running a, a jet sweep, or at least they're going to fake a jet sweep or possibly hand it off, and they fumble it there. There's another play where they pitched it out to McLeese, and they lost like 13 yards because he, he, you know, there's a, a bobble there and a fumble, and it ended up being a 50-yard field goal for Joey Sly. Just in all these critical spots, they could not find ways to get positive yardage and move the ball down the field. And part of that is because Miami, you know, sort of daring them to throw, playing with one safety down there, and the receivers couldn't get open down the field. So all that ties in with with how they uh, how well they run the ball. But you've got a backup left tackle in, in Parker Osterloh playing for Josh Nijman. Didn't seem like they really got a lot of push or a lot of openings there. Uh, to run the ball, and you know that's been a season-long problem. I mean, it's been a problem ever since Fuente got here, honestly. And Gerard Evans last year masked a lot of their problems in terms of running the ball. Uh, they don't quite have a, a dynamic runner like that at quarterback this year, and the, and the running backs are producing about the same as they were last season, which is which is a problem. Yeah, I go back to that Delaware game, which Tech won twenty-eight to nothing, and my entire column was, well, how come you didn't trample these guys on the ground? You know, it just seems like. This is an opportunity to just you know give give the quarterback and the receivers a break and just run over somebody. Uh, didn't happen that day, and that was sort of a red flag. But 
Uh, I still thought they would have enough balance here to to challenge Miami's defense. You know, I have a lot of faith in Fuente's ingenuity and all that. Uh, but one of the things he said was like, "Look, our receivers uh, weren't getting either weren't getting enough separation, or we weren't giving our quarterback enough time uh, for them to get separation." You know, it was a, a combination of things in the passing game that really uh, ran afoul. Yeah, and I feel like he's been telling us this all season yeah you know it's like it's just choose it's like selective hearing when you see them put up really big numbers against north carolina and east carolina you go well this offense can throw the ball down the field well not against really good defenses and i think that's uh sort of where you draw the line with this team is you know i i think this offense is good enough and these coaches are good enough to scheme and give you an advantage when you're either even with the team you're playing like say West Virginia or you're better than the team that you're playing, like most of the rest of the schedule that they've had where that you kind of run into a problem with that is it's tough to out scheme teams and to have any sort of advantage against a team like Miami or Clemson that has incredible athletes on defense that you just can't beat physically off the line. So that I think, you know, they're very good against teams. They're about as good at or better than offensively, but they really struggle against those elite defenses or really fast athletic groups because they just can't beat them. So, that's the line for this offense, and you know that still gets you to seven and two at this point because the schedule has been very easy to this, uh, you know, at this stage of the season. But uh, it's going to sort of be a ceiling for you. You can't go much higher than that because uh, I, I just don't think they have the horses right now in offense to be able to score uh, any kind of points against these really good defenses. It, it, it's just you know, it's a young young offense. They lost a lot of uh, talented skill guys, and it finally showed up this week. I think. Yeah, I'll take the L on my prediction. It was a poor prediction, but and I don't want to make excuses, but I will say like if Tech had played a noon game against Duke, all right, I would not have been on my couch watching Miami look like utter crap against UNC and I put so much of my viewpoint on Miami in in that single viewing, the game they played right before they played Virginia Tech. And we talked about it last week. You know, we expected a better Miami team than that. Uh, I was listening to the Levitar show, which, of course, is uh, based in Miami, the local hour. And Mike Ryan was saying he has it on good authority that uh, that Rozier played that entire game against North Carolina uh, with a very bad flu bug. Oh, that, really? that may explain a little bit of his. I mean, he wasn't, you know, great. I he on, threw for three fifty in that game. I thought. Well, uh, but he, you know, they, they, there were a lot of third downs they couldn't pick up, and I was like, man, how can you not gain against UNC? But you know, and, and look, he wasn't fantastic against Virginia Tech either. I mean, he threw what three picks? Three picks. I mean, he wasn't the reason they won the game. The defense was the reason they won the game, and I guess the defense played okay against North Carolina. They weren't a wrecking crew like they were seemed to be on Saturday. Well, night, they so. still gave up 19 points in that game to North Carolina. They still needed four turnovers to survive that win. I mean, it, it was a fumble in their own territory at the end against North Carolina. Maybe it's just as simple the fact as they were looking ahead to the next week. Could be. And you see that all the time. I think you see the the score, the 59-7 to score that North Carolina had against Virginia Tech the previous week. I would imagine that the Hurricanes would go in there and maybe not take it as seriously as they should have. And, and you know, that's the result they had. Clearly, they were dialed in uh, at Hard Rock Stadium on Saturday night. I mean, that place was jumping. Uh, great atmosphere. I think the whole city of Miami finally showed up to watch the Hurricanes play in a big game like that for, you know, first time, honestly, in 
14 years? I mean, how long has it been since they've been like this good? I think they had a, a highly ranked team since then, but maybe it was a little bit of fool's gold. I mean, this is, you know, they're, they're starting to get in the playoff conversation right now. They haven't been in that since, you know, the heyday around the turn of the century when they were some of the best college football teams in, in history. I don't think this team is nearly on that level, but it's been a while since they've been that excited about a team. Yeah, it was – I mean, you showed up, and the, the tailgating scene is always pretty good there. Um, but the actual – you know, it, it, the place is famous for the pictures two minutes to kick off. Your obligatory five minutes to kick off picture at the University of Miami. And <laughs> that that just wasn't the case this time. And I understand they're, they're, fair, they're as fair weather as it gets, and I don't blame them. Because the weather is fair down there, man. It is. It, we were getting out of the sea about noonish or two o'clock on Saturday, and I said to you, I said, if you are living here and you have the option of doing this, what we're doing right now, getting you know in the sea, or going to watch a three thirty tilt between Miami and you know Bethune Cookman, I mean, what are you gonna choose? I mean, it's a pretty you know you don't even pay to to swim in the sea. You just gotta pay for parking. Plus, that stadium used to be to the point where there was no shade anywhere yeah. in the crowd. So if you went to any sort of afternoon game, you would just bake in the sun. It would be so incredibly hot. Uh, I was impressed with the, the redo they did on that stadium down there. But you could tell that it was uh, it was kind of going to be a geeked-up crowd there where we're standing for the national anthem when we're looking in front of us. And there's like a scuffle breaking out in the crowd uh, from some very obviously inebriated fans right in front of the press box during the national anthem. It's like, you know, sometimes you can at least like stop your scuffle until after you've honored America. But they just kept going through the whole thing. Uh, it, it was at that point where I'm like, I think this crowd's going to be uh, – you know, pretty lit up here. Jim. I think it's it's going to be a very juiced crowd for this entire game. And to the credit, they were. Well, that fracas, uh, there was a woman who was pointing and yelling and, you know, she's got her finger out and then she's kind of like she would take her hand and put it on her heart, then bring her finger back out, point and scream and put it back on her heart. It was a real she was trying to be respectful, but also get her point across. I don't think she was the instigator. In that no, I'm going to go with the guy with the sideways hat <laughs> who was struggling to keep his balance. I'm going to guess that he was the one who started this whole thing yeah sideways hat is always going to be suspect number one <laughs> i think all right what is uh, you know miami we left there thinking okay well maybe miami's pretty good i mean you know they're, they're better than we thought um i think they're better than the miami press corps thought too i mean i don't think we're the only ones that went in there thinking that i mean and you look at it, the national riders and who were who they were picking in that game so many of them had virginia tech uh Virginia Tech was favored for most of the week until a, a very odd line move late uh, with sharp money came in. on. on that should have tipped us off of yeah. what the result was going to be. But, um, you know, like I'm saying, it's not just you know two guys at the Roanoke Times that were saying, you know, Miami's overrated and all this. It was a lot of people, and I think they showed, showed a lot that night. That's not the impression I got from Twitter. <laughs> all these Miami fans afterwards like, how do you like that? Oh, you guys are saying you're going to roll us. I'm like, first of all, it was a prediction. I'm wrong in predictions all the time. Correct. Uh, if if I wasn't, I wouldn't be doing this for a living. I would go live in Vegas and make millions of dollars with my brilliant sports predictions. Uh, yeah, I thought the majority of people thought that Miami was fraudulent. And I guess maybe it was because there wasn't as close an examination of Tech's record. Uh, that you know, it, I think Miami get, got the impression, oh, they haven't beaten anything. Actually, Toledo is pretty good. 
Uh, Toledo, I think, is like 8-1 or something like that. Miami handled them pretty well. It was the way that Miami had won some of these games. Such close games. Then you look at how Virginia Tech, it ran by North Carolina. That was sort of a game that snowballed on the Tar Heels with the defensive touchdowns and special teams. It probably wasn't quite that lopsided as it was. Uh, Duke, they beat them pretty bad. It was in the rain. Duke couldn't really do anything offensively uh, in the second half. It, it might not have against Bud Foster's defense anyway, but you don't really know. I don't know. It, it was a, you know, obviously a bad prediction in hindsight, but I'm still curious if Miami is quite the team that, what are they, sixth or seventh in these polls now? Uh, you know, they got Notre Dame this week. Notre Dame has been legit this year. It's got a really, really good offensive line. Uh, I think Notre Dame will run the ball significantly better than the Hokies did last week. I still think even with the score last week, I mean, there were opportunities there for Virginia Tech. Uh, you know, if Savoy doesn't fumble that ball right before halftime as they're going in, it looks like they've got a chance at points to either make it 14-6 to or with a touchdown 14-10. to That's a completely different ball game yeah. in the second half. Instead, it's 14-3. to uh, even with that, they start the second half. Reggie Floyd gets the pick, goes all the way down. Uh, they score a touchdown. It's 14-10 to 10 at that point. Stroman gets a pick. They get down. Uh, I can't remember which fourth down play that was. It, that might have been the, the one where uh, Jackson kind of rolled to his right and threw it too high and threw a pick coming. I can't exactly remember how that drive ended. Uh, either way, fourth down, they were right on the cusp of field goal range there. Uh, then you get the Reggie Floyd hits. With the personal foul, the next play is the, the touchdown for Miami, and it, it kind of snowballs from there in the second half. The, early in the second half, I thought it kind of had that belt bowl-type feel where Virginia Tech played such a horrible first half. Yeah. Uh, they were forcing turnovers every single drive, it seemed like, and the offense just couldn't capitalize on it. And, yeah. uh, that was a deflating feeling for the Hokies that they couldn't uh, quite turn those turnovers into something big, and, and then Miami hits on a big play, and then you just feel the weight of that stadium under you. So, you know, 28-10, to 10, that, that's a very thorough beating. I, I think that game had the potential to be a little bit closer than what the outcome was, though. Yeah, I mean, I kept waiting for it to come. I thought it was coming, I, I you know, till the till the bitter end. Well, probably till the fourth quarter. But I think once that tight end got the four, the forty three yard touchdown yeah. after the Floyd penalty, I was like, all right, I, this is not their night. Well, let's let's pause and talk about the Floyd penalty because you know Tech's facing an option offense this week in in Georgia Tech. Uh, I know you know it made fans. Furious. Uh, I, I just hate talking about officiating, to be honest. I just think it's so. Uh, it's a it, loser's lament. It is a loser's lament. But if we if we just take that specific play and say what happened there, I mean, I guess what they submitted, Texas, they had submitted to the ACC, and the ACC said we, we would call that again? That's essentially the takeaway I got. Bud said they turned it in, which, you know, when you turn in a play, you turn it into the league to have them review it after the fact. Um, you know, Fuente said after the game, he's like, "What? You know, is they're running this little midline, uh, you know, mesh there, and sometimes the quarterback keeps it, and sometimes the running back does. And the quarterback carried out a fake. You can see in the in the play, he's got his hands by his stomach like he's carrying the ball, yeah. and Reggie Floyd just clobbers him. Yeah. And I think, I think the penalty came because the hit was so violent. Yeah. I mean, he he crushed him. I mean, he just gave him an absolute blow there. Uh, the interesting thing is, like, if he hits him less hard, is it not a penalty? Right. 
Like, if, if you believe the guy actually has the ball, are you supposed to not hit him as hard? It's just it's a weird line to draw on that whole thing. And Fuente said he brought this up to the ref that night. He said, how are we supposed to know who has the ball? And, he, and the, the ref, his response supposedly to Fuente was, I agree, but not on that one. He yeah. thought on that one it was obvious he didn't have the ball. I don't know. I mean, if you slow it down, you obviously see the, the ball carry getting tackled near the line. But regular speed... You know, Miami was running those kind of plays all night, and there were a couple times where I was looking one way and the ball was going the other way on the field. It happens very fast. I would imagine if you're in the heat of battle, it's very tough on the field. I don't know. I, I think they only threw it because he hit him so hard. I mean, it was a, re- it was a really good hit. Uh, I still don't think it was a penalty, though. It hit him hard, and it's the quarterback. You know, I think if, right. you, if you carry right. out a fake to a running back and you do that, I think you, they let it go. Uh, we know they protect quarterbacks, but, but you know, from Tech's perspective, like you said, I mean, the guy ran for like 90 yards or something like yeah, that. Yeah, it was 84. He was, he was a running back, basically, yeah, most this of the is, night. If this was Peyton Manning that was carrying out this fake, you're like, <laughs> right. you know he doesn't have the ball in that right. situation. I will say if the roles were reversed and that was Josh Jackson who got lit up by the, the other team, I'm sure the Virginia Tech fans would be up in arms about it. I'm sure the Miami fans would be saying, what? I thought this was football. I thought we were playing football out there. Uh, I just think if you're a quarterback in any situation and you are actually carrying out a fake, you're still in the play. You're making yourself uh, vulnerable to that kind of hit. If you don't want to get hit like that, don't carry out the fake. That That's the whole point of the fake is to deceive the defense. If you're trying to deceive the defense, you're still part of the play. Right. Well, I, I don't think I've learned my lesson. I'm still – I think I'm going to pick Notre Dame to win this game. Uh, in, I did too. Miami. Yeah. I picked them in the, uh, the forecasters. Uh, which I'm doing terribly in, by the way. I, I made a bunch of upset picks this week, and it's going to go horribly wrong, and I'll plummet to the bottom of the rankings, I bet. But even if that game is just very close and a thriller, I mean, I think Miami is making a very good case for being back or close to being back. And uh, Wrong. I, well, I want to look at it from the, from the Virginia Tech perspective. If Miami gets back, or even at, at the point they're at now um, – what does that mean for Tech? I mean, they have not really had to worry all that much about Miami when it comes to Coastal Division contention. I mean, it, Miami's never won the Coastal Division before this year, which looks like they're going to do, unless, you know, barring a strange confluence of events that involves Virginia. Uh, what does it mean for, for Virginia Tech if Miami is, is starting uh, a resurgence here? First of all, Miami being back means Miami being one of the best teams in the country. I don't think they're there yet. I think that will... I think that will bear out this week. I, I don't think they're going to beat Notre Dame. I think Notre Dame's a much better, more physical team in this kind of game. I mean, you have to remember when Miami was like at its apex, it was among the best teams in college football history. I mean, it was 34-game winning streak, stuff like that. It wasn't eking by games against North Carolina and Syracuse and Georgia Tech. Uh, so when people say, is Miami back, they're, they're back to being a contender in the Coastal Division, but they're not back to that national, huge, great teams where they're putting you know, seven first-rounders or whatever. Yeah, I forget the stats that they had over the years, the, the number of guys they put in the NFL. So we'll see. I mean, Mark Richt has recruited pretty well. Uh, he's obviously a guy who's won big games before, even though he never won the national championship or really got to that level at Georgia. That was sort of the knock on him is that he would recruit really well, have great teams like that, but could never win the big one in terms of getting Georgia into that national conversation. Uh, you know, Virginia Tech has faced some of those really good Miami teams when they were good, uh, when they were great. I mean, they ended Miami's regular season winning streak, I think, in 2003. Uh 
I think they won a game when they were both top five. And I, I can't remember the years exactly. I mean, they've, they've won some big games against some very good Miami teams. I don't think they're intimidated uh, by the hur- the big bad hurricanes like a lot of teams were uh, in the heyday there. I think they can continue to be competitive, even if Miami is really good in the Coastal. I think you know that's that's what's best for the league, is Virginia Tech and Miami to both be really good in the Coastal division at the same time. The ACC has never really seen that. I mean, as soon as the ACC took Miami, uh, that first year both of them competed for the conference title. It was a de facto ACC championship game. But ever since then, it, Miami has fallen off. Uh, Virginia Tech was good for a while. It was sort of carrying the, the pail for the the league there for a while and then fell off the latter Beamer years. I think they've bounced back under Fuente. Uh, you know, I don't think Fuente is ever going to recruit at Miami's level. It's just not how Virginia tech does things, but I think it could compete at that level. If they continue to find the right kind of players to fit into the system, they have a good defense that Bud Foster always puts on the field and they can find some sort of uh, standout transcendent type quarterback. I think that's the formula for success at Virginia Tech, and I think if you do that, you can compete with Miami even with the kind of stars that they have down there. Well, as you and I were dining on South Beach on Friday night, we were dreaming about the possibility of spending an entire week down there for the Orange Bowl. At least you would spend the whole week. I'd probably parachute in a little bit later, but that's not... It was all dashed. (laughs) That's not going to happen. There is like an out, like if Virginia Tech wins out and Miami goes in the tank here uh, and then Clemson makes the playoff, uh, you know, the next highest ranked team is what the team that would go to the Orange Bowl. So conceivably, Virginia Tech could get itself ahead of a, a Miami team that just falls out of favor here, but... Uh, if Miami does half decent down the stretch, I would imagine that it would stay ahead of Virginia Tech in any kind of uh, football rankings at the end, just based on that head-to-head alone. Okay. Let's talk about what Virginia Tech is still playing for. Um, I, I I would postulate, and I think I'm going to write about this Saturday, but I, I would say that it's it's very rare, if not unprecedented, that a team that is in the top 20 in the coastal division of the ACC since that has been introduced – has been eliminated with three conference games remaining. Like if you're having the kind of season where you're ranked in the top 20, I mean, obviously the poll voters, and we'll talk about your poll a little bit later, but the poll voters respect Virginia Tech's two losses and they still have them. They have them 17th right now. So, um, I wrote last, you know, after the game, I said, well, it's, you know, that now they cannot achieve the same level of success as they did in Fuente's first year. And that's true in terms of the coastal division, but, there are other ways to measure success. Uh, you know, you can look at final rankings. You can look at how many wins you have. You can look at what bowl you end up at and whether you beat somebody good uh, in that bowl. What you know? Let, let's let's talk about what Virginia has out there in terms of carrots. I know the biggest one that they always look for is the Coastal Division. That's gone. What what's still there? Well, you can still win ten games in the regular season. You can still win eleven games overall if you win your bowl game. That would be an improvement on last year. Last year they went 10-4 and four on the season. Uh, I forget exactly where they finished in the rankings, 16th, 17th, something like that last year. They are 17th right now. If they continue winning, they can finish higher in that regard. Um, you know, They played in a decent bowl game last year at the Belk Bowl. Uh, Arkansas was not the greatest opponent that they beat. I think there's a higher ceiling in what bowl game they can go to this year. If, if things fall right, the Citrus Bowl could open up for the ACC. Uh, I could see that being a, uh, a logical spot for them to go. And if you go to the Citrus Bowl, you play a pretty good SEC team. I think I saw some projection out there that would have uh, Mississippi State potentially in that game. That would be a better uh, bowl opponent than what they had 
uh, uh, against uh, Arkansas last year. So there are some some things out there to achieve. Obviously, you know, beating Virginia will be tougher this year. Virginia is a more competitive team, bowl eligible at this point, uh, technically still alive in the Coastal Division. Although I have to think that. Uh, Going to Louisville, I would imagine they're road dogs in that game. That's not going to be an easy one. If they lose that, Miami clinches without even playing uh, another Coastal Division game. Uh, you know, beat Virginia. That's out there. Get the 10 wins. That's sort of that number that's a magical number here at Virginia Tech when, when Frank had eight straight years where he won 10 games. Uh, yeah, there's still a lot out there. And, and you know, there's pride, too. I mean, the, these seniors don't want to go out on you know, a losing way. I think the last time that you know, a tech team started really good like that and then just went in the tank at the end of the season with that 2003 year where it's an extremely talented team i mean you got kevin jones d'angelo hall jake grove and somehow that team just had like the worst chemistry possible and just went in the tank the last four or five games of the season that's obviously something you want to avoid for guys like cam phillips and wyatt teller and uh you know uh, veterans like andrew matupawaka uh, you know, you don't want to end your college career like that, especially when you had had such a, a big hand and sort of turning the corner and, and, you know, getting on to such a good start under Fuente. Yeah, and I know Fuente can annoy us as reporters when we want to do big picture stories about the Coastal Division and things like that. And all he talks about is 1-0. But I think... You know, that that mentality helps in a situation like this because he never he says, look, I never put on a on a goal board coastal division title. That's not just not something I do. Um, You know, I I would do it if I were the coach. But, you know, the way he operates, you know, that that was never really a stated goal. I think it was unstated and everybody knew it. But, um, you know, he doesn't really have to change his message, I guess, is what I'm getting at. They have higher tech uh, motivational boards than just going to a whiteboard and writing coastal. (laughs) (laughs) This is the newspaper way of thinking. It's like, we don't have the resources that you do there, but we're just going to go to this chalkboard and write coastal and underline it twice for emphasis. Uh, Yeah, you know, he answered the question a lot better uh, Monday than he did right after the game. Like, what are you still playing for? Uh, And he... You know, he was going to give his Sunday spiel. They had their travel tr- troubles on uh, Sunday trying to get back from the game. So he didn't really have a chance to address the team. But he sort of addressed the team through us. And you know, obviously he'd tell them this later. But he gave this really good sort of like answer about, you know, send the seniors out right, playing for pride, better bowl game. Like he listed all these things they're still playing for. So as much as he say he doesn't list these big season goals, I think he still does kind of, maybe not as explicitly as it's coastal division or bust. Cause you don't want to put that much out there and then you fall short of it. All of a sudden the team's just like, ah, what are we playing for now? But I have to imagine the coastal division came up at least somewhere along the line, uh, in some of their preseason talk. Yeah. I, I skipped over the travel woes. I had that on my list here. Tell us about the travel woes. Didn't sound fun. Uh, I have no, huge sympathy because coming back from Shreveport last year was among the worst travel experiences I've had in my life. Uh, sleeping in the Dallas airport, uh, multiple delays. Uh, we walked by some guy in the, the terminal that like had thrown up on the floor where he's like napping. He was, he had been overserved in the airport terminal and thrown up next to himself. It's like, all right, I've been through this sort of travel. Sorry hell. about that. I yeah. had a little too much. <laughs> like Mike Barber and I were like walking by, like, should somebody help him? Can we find security like to help this guy? Uh, eventually they got him up. He was okay. Uh, yeah, the team coming back, it didn't sound fun. They got to the Miami airport. They had a chartered flight out that was delayed to begin with. This is at like 2 in the morning. 
Uh, I think it was already past the time change, so they were joking that, oh, the flight's on time. It's an hour late, but it goes back to the uh, regular time at 1 o'clock. They try to fly into Roanoke. Uh, it is foggy as heck, as you know, people that fly into Roanoke know. Uh, so they turned around after a couple passes, and they diverted to Raleigh. Uh, sat on the tarmac for a while there. Uh, took off again around sunrise. You know, they never deplaned in Raleigh. So all these huge guys sitting on this plane can't get up, can't get out. That's got to be pretty miserable. Uh, try to fly into Roanoke again, leaving at sunrise, take a couple passes, still can't do it. <laughs> they turn over, uh, divert to Tri-Cities over in Tennessee, just across the border by Bristol. Uh, land there. The buses that were waiting for them in Roanoke drive all the way to Bristol or Tri-Cities to pick them up. They turn around, they bus back. It's a two-hour drive. Obviously, you're on I-81. There's going to be a wreck somewhere. They run into that. They have to take back roads around it, add another hour to the drive. By the time they got back, it was like 3 p.m. on Sunday when they were supposed to be back at you know, maybe 3 a.m. or 4 a.m. on Sunday morning. So uh, that, that's quite a, uh, quite a delay for them, and it kind of threw off their schedule that day. You know, Fuente had him do a short lift. You know, injured guys did some treatments, and he gave them the rest of the night off. There was no practice or anything like that. So uh, in a game week where practice is paramount and you have to get prepared for this really weird offense, uh, losing that time was, was probably uh, not a good thing. But, you know, you don't want to burn these guys out, too. I think that's something you have to weigh as a head coach. Yeah, well, we flew into Roanoke about 3 p.m. on, on Sunday, and it was kind of harrowing with the fog. I mean, it's like you see these mountains, and I know they have all sorts of uh, equipment that can navigate on its own, but, man, you, you like all of a sudden a mountain appears next to you, and you're like, oh, damn. Wait, wait, was here? it even fog, or was it just like a low cloud? Like you, look at the, cloud you look at the clouds, they like just barely spill over this mountain where the valley is with Roanoke. You're like, Roanoke's down there? I don't see anything. It's like, oh, man, this is... Uh, yeah. I, I don't know about you, but like... I, I wish they'd make that decision before you're flying in. Like, I, I don't like the pilots like, well, let's see if we can give it a shot here. It's like, let's not fly by the seat of our pants here. Let's maybe, uh, let's try it. What? Nope. We're going to turn around. Like just turn around to start with. I'd feel much more comfortable about that. They're professionals. They know what they're doing. Yeah. We had a layover in Philadelphia and I had a Gino's cheesesteak overrated, overrated overrated add it to my overrated list of places that everyone talks about i didn't have a chance to go down there i thought our time was gonna be tight there and i was trying to post all my stuff online i'm gonna give them the benefit of the doubt because you know i usually the airport version of the much worse not as good but i just you know the meat was like if you get uh if you buy steak them at the store and you just didn't chop up the meat you just put the slabs you you browned the slabs and threw some cheese on it that's basically what they did it was no weak weak Aaron's food corner right there, folks. Yeah, well, I was not excited about that, but I am excited about the preparation for for, for Georgia Tech because something has happened. There's been something uh, that has made me very excited about their preparation. I'm curious to hear what that is, Aaron. I don't know That's right. It's time for the Pimpleton Minute. This might be the earliest Pimpleton Minute. Uh, this is the liveliest Pimpleton Minute we've had in a while. Uh, yeah, you tweeted it out yesterday, and I want to give Nathan some credit for his response tweet. But uh, it doesn't make any sense unless you tell us why I'm so excited about our Pimpleton Minute this week. They have tabbed uh, Khalil Pimpleton, wide receiver, freshman wide receiver for the Hokies. 
this week to be the scout team quarterback uh, to mimic Georgia Tech's option offense. Uh, Taquan Marshall, I think he's like 5'8", 185 pounds. Khalil Pimpleton's 5'7", 170 pounds, somewhere in that range. Bit of a jitterbug, I think we've described him in the past. Waterbug. Uh, he was a, a high school quarterback in Michigan. Uh, you know, that's sort of been part of his transition this year and why he hasn't played that much at receivers because it's been an adjustment for him trying to play a brand new position. Uh, they needed somebody to sort of give them that look, a really fast, uh, you know, uh, guy that can make a lot of shifty moves and stuff like that, sort of uh, low to the low to the ground. So he's behind all these big linemen. You kind of lose sight of him and stuff like that. He seems like the perfect guy to mimic what, uh, you know, physically is about a, a similar quarterback that Georgia Tech has. I'm excited because this is it just underscores what a team guy he is. He's a team first player, and he's also going to get opportunities to dust this Bud Foster defense this week. And then Bud Foster is going to have to go into Fuente's office and say, "Look, we need to talk about how you're utilizing Mr. Pimpleton because we couldn't stop him. How are other teams going to stop him when we could?" That's a pretty big assumption. Don't you're, don't. You're <laughs> Based on, he is working at scout team quarterback, and Aaron's interpretation of this is unstoppable offensive force that needs to find a way into the quarterback rotation. That's right. Well, Brandon Faison's going back to uh, Georgia. Uh, Faison's had a checkered career here. I mean, he's 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 had so many injuries and uh, and everything else, but he's played a lot of games despite you know always seeming to be battling something. You have a good. Brandon Faison's story for the listeners out there. Tell us that. Yeah, it's interesting. He's going back to Georgia Tech for the third time, I believe. I think it's the third game he'll play. Uh, you know, he's from Noonan, Georgia, just outside of Atlanta, you know, because he redshirted his sophomore year with the injury. Uh, I think it's worked out that he's played three games there. I'd have to go back and check that. Uh, you know, obviously he came in here with a very uh, strong educational focus that he wanted. He wanted to be a hard surgeon. That's going to sort of be the, the focus of my story and what I'm writing tomorrow. He had this middle school teacher that was very influential. I'm trying to get in touch with her. She shows up to all the games that they play at Georgia Tech. Uh, sounds like she'll be there in attendance at this game coming up. Uh, so that's sort of the, the crux of that story. We asked uh, Andrew Matuapuaka about Brandon Faison. It's like, did you kind of get the sense early on that he was a little bit different in terms of like, you know, how he approaches things and educational focus and all that stuff. And he, he told us that they were out as a group and Matuwaka is a, I think uh, Faison was a year older. Or maybe they came at the same time. I can't remember exactly. They're both freshmen at the time. There's like a group of football players kind of going around campus. And I don't know if it was like frat guys or whoever it was, was was coming up to these guys like, oh, these jocks, you know, these stupid jocks. Look at these idiots over here. They're so dumb. <laughs> and like all the, the football players have their response. And Brandon Faces was, I'm a, I have a 3.8 GPA. I'm a biochem major. And Matuapawag is like, I'm over here getting ready to tool up on these guys. This is your response? That's how you approach this thing? So – uh, yeah, that was a really that was one of the best anecdotes that Andrew Matuapawak has ever given us in his time here. Uh, I thought that was a pretty funny response, but that does kind of tell you that you know Faison's a little bit different in how he approaches things. He's not really on social media like that. He doesn't have a lot of tattoos or anything like that. He's just sort of a, a straight laced guy. Uh, has been very uh, focused educationally on what he wants to accomplish. In turn, I think he's a biology major. He's looking at taking the MCAT at some point. Wants to be a heart surgeon long term. Uh, very interesting guy to cover for a while, and you know I think you're glad to see him have finally have some stretch of health here, uh, where you know he's played every game this season, he's felt healthy, 
Uh, I think he ha- either has broken or is tied for the most passes defended uh, in Hokies history, and that's up there with Brandon Flowers and, and Anton Exum. So you're talking about really good cornerbacks and defensive backs from Virginia Tech's history. Uh, you know, just sort of a – I'll be writing sort of a, a career-type rap story and, and him going back to, to Georgia for the last time. Here. Well, I'm, I'm glad you're doing that. I remember when he was a freshman, I looked in the media guide, and I was just trying to brush up on some of these new guys coming in. And there was there it was, like the last little parenthetical thing. Once to – aspires to be a heart surgeon. And, you know, you don't see that in media guides very much. So I went and talked to him, and I ended up talking to the middle school teacher that was influential with him because uh, she was she was awesome. And uh, I remember when I, I we posted that story, I got a flood of, of emails from people in Georgia, you know, that live in his hometown and whatever, and they just love this guy. And I'm glad we're updating because I remember when I wrote it, I was like thinking, yeah, he thinks he's going to be a heart surgeon now. Wait till he, you know, he's worn out from practice and hitting and all that stuff and realizes how hard these classes are going to be to juggle with football. It's probably going to, you know, he'll probably shift to something a little more manageable. Uh, but it doesn't sound like he's done that. No, and he talked about it. He's like, you know, you're you're dead tired after a chem lab and then you got to go over and do a football practice. Like, that's not a football-type major. Right. You know, a lot of these guys going. I think the popular one at Virginia Tech is like or housing management or something like that. That's sort of the football major uh, at Virginia Tech, uh, you don't see a lot of biology guys that are that hell bent on, you know, uh, getting a degree that's going to help you in a medical field like that down the line. I think a couple of years ago, Michael Cole was like that, uh, before he had the neck injury, uh, out of Cape Spring there. I think he was applying to medical schools, uh, after he graduated. Uh, but yeah, it's sort of a rare thing and that's, that's tough to pull out. I mean, it's tough to do one, either that kind of major, or play football. It's tough to do either of those things. Or to do, do them well. Yeah, to do them both and to do them both well, like Faison has done. It, I mean, that's you know, that's the student athlete model that the NCAA tries to to hold up. I mean, that's, that's an extremely rare case that anybody can pull that off. But you know, if, if you're the NCAA and you want to like tout that whole model, I think Brandon Faison is a guy you put out there front and center. Yeah, good. I look forward to reading that story now. With Georgia Tech, you know the storylines; they're pretty much the same every year, but. Um, one that I think Virginia Tech is especially coming off a performance where they didn't do much offensively in Miami. Uh, the fact that they're not going to get a lot of offensive possessions, how big of a deal is that and how, how much are they going to have to capitalize the times they do have the ball? Yeah, I think it's a big deal. Uh, it puts a whole lot of pressure on your offense to be productive in those possessions. I think Fuente was describing it. Um, you know, he described it wasn't an option team they were playing. It was Wisconsin in the Rose Bowl. Uh, and I think that's 2010, 2011. I can't remember the year exactly. Uh, but he said they ran three plays in the third, in the second quarter. He was the TCU offensive coordinator. Wisconsin had a couple of seven-minute drives sandwiched around a three and out for TCU. And he's like, we just never had the ball in that quarter. And he's like, it never dawned on me at that moment how much pressure there is on you. I've never felt that as an offensive coordinator, having that much pressure. Like, when you have the ball, you have to do something. You can't waste any sort of possessions or plays or anything like that. And, you know, that's something to watch with this Hokies team. This is going to be sort of the angle of my advance that I'm going with on Saturday, is uh, they've been a slow-starting team. They've thrown away some possessions early in the game. Uh, the last couple weeks, really all season, quite honestly. I think they have three offensive touchdowns and three special teams and defensive touchdowns this season. So the, the, the defense and special teams has been just as productive at scoring points in the first quarter as the offense. 
Uh, you can't really have that against this Georgia Tech team, and it showed last year. I mean, they were down six nothing after the first quarter. They were down twenty to nothing at halftime against Georgia Tech last season in Lane Stadium. Kind of a shocking result, given that uh, the Yellow Jackets did not have a starting quarterback. Their starting center was out. Starting running back was suspended. They still went in there and got up this big lead. And when you're down twenty to nothing against Georgia Tech, it might as well be forty to nothing. You're just yeah. not going to get the ball enough to come back in that sort of situation. So it's critical. Uh, to start fast, to have productive drives early in the game and get some points and not find, fall behind the eight ball against this team because uh, it's just not one that you want to be playing in comeback mode. Yeah, and we talked about what Virginia Tech is playing for. Georgia Tech has a ton to play for. You mentioned before we got uh, hopped on this podcast, you know, they're 4-4 four and four and one of their last remaining games is against Georgia. Um, so, And who's the other one, Pitt? Or who else they got besides? Uh, they play Duke. Duke. They, they lost played, the game to the to the hurricane. They did, but it was against UCF, which, quite honestly, they might have lost that game anyway. Okay, but they, I mean, they they have a lot of reason to be motivated. They just lost to Virginia, you know, that, and they're coming home and they're circle the wagons type of game for them. Uh, They've been very unlucky with the weather. Yeah, too. I mean, that uh, obviously that Miami game was in uh, monsoon in the second half. Uh, it rained at Clemson. I don't think they would have lost or beaten Clemson anyway, but they only lost by 14 in that game. You'd have to figure if it was a little less sloppy, their option game would be better there. Uh, you know, they put up 36 points against Virginia last week in the rain. Again, I think seven of that came on a pick six. Mm-hmm. Is that right? Uh, which Banker needs to stop throwing. I read this one of the five thoughts from our colleague Doug Dowdy there. Uh, yeah, I think they've just lost a bunch of games this year that maybe – uh, not quite indicative of how they've been. They lost like a one-point game in double overtime to Tennessee in the opener. Uh, you know, th- I don't quite think this team is as bad as the record indicates, which is, you know, we'll get to the prediction here in a little bit. I think this will be a very, very tight game on Saturday. Yeah, I agree. I agree. Cut blocks are always an issue with uh, with Georgia Tech just because the way they run their offense. What is Virginia Tech doing to, to counter that? Well, you have to practice it and practice it at, at a full speed during the week. I mean, you can't give like a, oh, here's a 50% look at what a cut block might look like. Because once you get to the game, it becomes that much more fast and physical than what you're used to during the week. You obviously don't want to go just like all out the entire week and just, you know, beat up your team and wear them down before you even get to the game. But you have to up the physical intensity a little bit. Otherwise, you're just not going to be adequately prepared for these guys diving at your legs and how to get off of those blocks. I mean, there's a technique to it. You kind of keep a hand on the helmet, the shoulder, and push them down and and try to stay upright. That's the whole key to it. But uh, it's tough, and sometimes you don't know where it's coming at at you from. I mean, it's uh, – you know, Charlie Wiles, defensive line coach, calls a, a cut block and a chop block the same thing, even though one is legal and one is illegal right. uh, in the games. So, you know, what's the difference? When they're diving at your knees, what's the difference uh, in the whole thing? So uh, that's sort of their attitude with it. They know it's coming. They have to prepare for it. Uh, it's never an easy thing to do. But, you know, historically, Bud Foster has found a way to, to find a way to stop this defense or at least slow it down a little bit, at least better than other teams have. So he's seen it more than anybody in the Coastal Division over the years. I mean, he's been the one constant defensive coordinator that whole time. This will be his 10th matchup uh, against Paul Johnson's option. So uh, we'll see what they cook up. I mean, last year Paul Johnson got the better of them uh, with a couple of big plays that hit. 
uh, 309 rushing yards for the game. I don't think it was an overwhelming uh, performance by Georgia Tech rushing the ball. I mean, other than those two big plays, it wasn't uh, like seven yards a carry or anything like that. But it was certainly enough to win a game where Virginia Tech's offense did not produce much. And, and we'll see if, if Bud has a, a counterpunch this year for it. All right, before we get to our predictions for this game, uh, let's hit your poll really quick. Uh, who are the big movers and shakers this week? This is a tough one this week. Uh, not so tough, like one through ten. I think those were fairly easy picks. It was from eleven to twenty, where I just I laid out the resumes for all the teams. And I'm like, I could put any of these teams anywhere here and, and probably make an argument for it. Uh, one of the big movers. I finally gave Miami a little bit of respect uh, after that win. I moved them from tenth to sixth. Uh, still behind Oklahoma, Clemson, uh, Notre Dame. Uh, Georgia and Alabama, those are the, the top six that I have, or top five that I have there. But, you know, Miami is right on the cusp of that. And if it can beat Notre Dame this week, I mean, it's right in the conversation with any of those teams up there. Um, I'm trying to think other movers. Now, honestly, I kept Iowa State at 12, which I thought was a little too high probably. I didn't feel comfortable about this. I didn't finish this until like 4 in the morning when you were well asleep after we had gotten back to the, <laughs> the hotel by the airport. Uh, then I filed it in the morning before we left. Uh, like I said, I, I wasn't feeling that great. And like, how, what, what do you do with Ohio State and Penn State and Michigan State right now? Right. And like Iowa, all of a sudden is in the mix, mix, but they've lost three games, but they've beaten Ohio State that badly. It was just kind of a cluster once you get past that top ten. I'm hoping this week, uh, with an early game like that, I'll have a little bit more time to sit down and study it and figure out a good way to do it. Hopefully, there's a lot of ranked teams that are playing each other this week. I mean, you got Notre Dame, Miami, you've got Alabama, Mississippi State. Uh, Georgia Auburn is playing. I mean, there's just a lot of really good games. TCU Oklahoma is also playing. I think things will sort itself out this week a little bit, and I'm hoping for a little bit more clarity in the rankings. Well, people say that Wisconsin is getting dissed. Do you agree with that as a Badger yourself? I think they're where they should be uh, in the thing. I think I had them. What did I have them here? I had them eighth. I mean, they've, they've beaten one team in the playoff rankings twenty top 25, and that's Northwestern, which I don't even have ranked in mine. Uh, they play Iowa this week. Iowa is ranked, uh, so that'll be something to watch. Uh, they have Michigan later in the year. I don't think Michigan is in the, the college football rankings right now. Uh, it's just tough. They, they had a bad break this year with the schedule. I mean, BYU turned out to be just absolutely lousy. That, you know, when you schedule that game five years in advance, you think BYU is at least going to be decent when you're playing that game, especially on the road. That's not the case this year. Uh, just so happened that Ohio State uh, rotated off the schedule this year. They played Ohio State, Michigan, Michigan and Penn State last year. Uh, you know, they played a really tough schedule and they had a good team. Those were like the only losses they had all season. Uh, this year, they don't really have that tough of a schedule because of the Big Ten rotation. So it's not Wisconsin's fault that it's not ranked very high. But you still have to take a look at who they've played and, and probably say, yeah, they're, they're on the outskirts right now looking in of the uh, of the playoff. Is it crazy to think that Florida State and Clemson are playing this week and that's not even the big game? That's very strange. And right. I was like, I, we were trying to find a hotel a little bit up the road uh, from uh, Atlanta. And I'm like, why are these prices so up? It's like $400 a night in, in uh, Spartanburg or something like that. I'm like, oh, Clemson's hosting Florida State and right. nobody's talking about it. Uh, Florida State, by the way, rescheduled the Louisiana Monroe game. Probably going to get bowl eligible. They have an FCS team coming up after Clemson. They play Florida, which is a dumpster fire right now. Uh, probably should win that game. I think they're going to get to six and six and extend that bowl streak in the you know 
barely extend it, it, it as close as you can come to having it end. But uh, it sounds like it will end, so we'll still have to continue. You know, Virginia Tech fans will say, well, they vacated the game, so the streak has ended. And then other more sensible people like myself will say, no, they still played in that game. The bull streak is 36 years or whatever it is. You're right, man. This is a great week to just sit on your couch and watch football, especially if the weather's anything like it is today. Uh, you know, the Hokies are off the tee at 12. 12- 1220 and then you got a whole day of really big matchups later glorious 1220 and next week's 1220 against Pitt. finally nice nice okay uh let's get to our predictions the virginia tech georgia tech will tell we'll say hokies are favored by three which way you going and why i will take the hokies 20 to 19 I just think it's going to be close. 22 to 21. That's what I think. I don't think Georgia Tech kicks many field goals. I think it's going to be very, very tight. Uh, I just don't feel comfortable uh, Virginia Tech uh, having the kind of offensive success that it's had earlier this year. I think Georgia Tech, the defense obviously is not good. You look at giving up 40 points to Virginia last week. Uh, but I think they can milk the clock very well and do things to sort of mitigate the fact that their defense is not very good. Uh, so I think it's going to be you know claw scratch all the way to the end. Uh, I I won't pick them to cover, but I'll pick them to win just barely. Well, I hope I'm wrong here because I really want to go to a nice warm bowl destination this year, um, and we'll we'll start talking more about where the bowl possibilities are next week. But I'm going to go with Georgia Tech. I'm going to take the Jackets 28-21. I I, I feel like I was burned last week uh, putting all kinds of faith in that offense and just didn't get didn't get the result that I was looking for there and with what you're talking about with limited possessions you know it's going to be every one of these Georgia Tech Virginia Tech games seems to you know turn on on you know some one play you know it's a big you know a personal foul or something just changes the whole uh, complexion of the game um, it's it's always close Georgia Tech has a lot of motivation uh, Virginia Tech you know st- Look, they're going to try and regroup and, and and find new carrots and all those things, but it's going to be difficult to do. Um, you know, they're human. And so I, I kind of see a, a game where we walk out of there and say, man, that, you know, Miami might have beaten them twice here. Maybe. We'll say, I mean, they're pretty beat up, too. I mean, Josh Jackson took a bunch of shots the other week. Uh, apparently, his foot was in a boot earlier this week. We obviously saw his elbow get hit. Uh, so we'll say sometimes it does take a physical toll uh, the next week. I, I think historically Fuente has been pretty good about getting this team to bounce back from a loss. So I'm curious to see how that, uh, you know, kind of works with, you know, such a deflating loss like that against Miami where your your big season goal that was ahead of you winning the division is no longer there. I'm curious how they come back from that. And, you know, that honestly might tell us kind of how the rest of the season might go. Uh, based on how they come back in this game. Yeah, and you also wonder how Georgia Tech feels after losing uh, a, a tight game at, at Virginia. But I think what you said about the weather is important. You know, it's really hard to run the option in that in that weather. I did pick Virginia in that game. I'll take credit for that one. I had a lone wolf pick on Virginia. Did you there. really think they were going to win, or did you just see value in the fact that people weren't going to pick that in the fearless forecast? Uh, you know, Virginia has historically played Georgia Tech well especially at Scott Stadium. And, uh, you know, there was a lot of talk about how Bronco loves stopping the option. Well, the defense did not win that game for them. Uh, <laughs> that's not what happened there. But uh, I was kind of putting my, my stock in all of those things, and, and it worked out. Um, I don't know. I don't know. You know, usually when Virginia Tech gets favored, 
the Roanoke Times Steelers forecasters is straight Virginia Tech across the board. But I'm I'm gonna go GT there, and we'll see we'll see if I'm a lone wolf there again. You're like a spurned lover this week. It's like <laughs> you've burned me for the last time, Hokies. Not this time. I do like what they're doing with Pendleton. I don't know, I'll put it that way. Uh, that that could be an X factor late in the game. They're like, okay, we're bringing out our secret weapon that we saw now in practice what he can do. I'd like to see it. That'd, that'd be a great storyline. <laughs> it would. All right, well, we'll cover it all. We'll both be there, and we'll have uh, coverage on Roanoke.com, and there will be other stories in the interim. So be sure to check all those out on Roanoke.com. For Andy Bitter, this is Aaron McFarling. want to thank everyone for listening. There's been good numbers on this podcast, and we do appreciate it. And we'll have another one next week. We'll hope you join us for that. For Andy Bitter, Aaron McFarling, we'll see you next time.